Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's uh, Monday morning. I've been out of commission for a while. Last week I was not feeling well. I hurt my knee barely on Simchas Torah, and then it was even worse afterwards. I tore part of meniscus. So anyway, all that's by way of, that's why I took a week off. Because um, my head didn't work. You know, when you're in pain, you can't think well. Now I'm recovering, thank God, little by little. And I'm going to do today, I'm going to try to get back on track. And uh, although not in, in in a regular way, I'm, my head is uh, still a little woozy and I'm in Sephardi land. Uh, the good Lord works in mysterious ways. And I'll explain what I mean. But today's podcast is being sponsored by Richard Kleinman and family. Uh, the Kleidmans. In, uh, at this in memory of his mom, Golda Basiakov Lave, who he wrote to me. Uh, <laughs> it's actually funny. He was first telling me about uh, what a chesed person she was, and I'm sure that's true. Even in her older years, when her, she started to have uh, Alzheimer's situation, but still, the she, you know, just by by rote and habit, she was still doing chesed, and uh, which is not so common, by the way. And then. Anyway, the long and the short of it is we're going back and forth. It turns out that she was a niece of uh, Rabbi Zinn Kaplan, who started the Beis Yaakov movement, you know, Rabbi Baruch Kaplan, that's her uncle, and uh, had all kind of interesting stories over there, because it's, you know, some were more from, some were less from, you know, one of those cases from America, I guess, 80, 100 years ago. That is really, uh, that was really interesting. And uh, I got to share this story. He says that uh, my mother's brother, Yossi, was very influenced by Baruch Kaplan. Later in life, for years, they would spend an hour a day learning by phone, so I almost never could get through to my Uncle Yossi when I tried to call. At the beginning of his career, when he was around 17, this is, I think, before the Second World War, um, when Yossi wanted to go to Europe, learning the Mir Yeshiv with Baruch and another uncle. Um, my Bobby did not want to let him go, because after all, what normal person want their kids to go to Europe in the 1930s? Rabbi Herman, that's all for the boss, came to try to convince her. She wasn't impressed and didn't budge. And she said, wait, Rabbi, let me soap up the stairs for you. <laughs> or it's like you, you can fall down. And he went on a hunger strike, the boy Yossi, and eventually was able to go. The parents gave in and went to Mir. It's just this America from long ago. Anyway, uh, the Climbs are very uh, known for Yashris and all the rest. I'm sure he got that from his mom and dad. And we pay tribute to her memory, uh, uh, what we talk about today. Now, um, as I said, last week, I was out of it, so I was, mom just drew a blank. Even if you would have told me a week ago, who you want to talk about, you know, my, my head didn't work. And then a whole bunch of different things came together in funny ways, and a uh, bunch of different coincidences, I guess you might wish to call them, if, if you're so inclined, and I'll tell you what I mean. First of all, um, this past Friday was the uh, Yartzit of Vadi Yosef. Second of all, here in Baltimore, they had some kind of a thing called Smichas Chavar program or whatever, where, you know, Balabatim learn, um, uh, you know, Halacha Lamaisa, and they brought in, among other speakers, the former chief rabbi of Israel, Shlomo Amar, who's the successor of Vad Yosef. Not right away, but like two two rabbis after him or something like that. So all of a sudden, I was thinking about this Friday stuff, and uh, we, the Vada Rabbanim in Baltimore, had a separate meeting with him with uh, Rabbi Shlomo Amar. I don't know if you know who he is. Uh, he's a big Sephardic rabbi. Um, I think he's originally Moroccan, but he grew up in Israel. And, you know, he wrote a lot of Shalosin too, but I don't have him, but Shlomo Shlomo. But uh, he wrote a lot of, I'm maybe, I'm not exaggerating if I say he wrote 15 or 20 volumes. You can look it up. And, uh, this is the whole, the Sephardi word, he came in the whole outfit, you know, the purple, um, uh, chief rabbi robes like Avad Yossi made famous, and uh, it was interesting because he had this uh, conversation with us, he told this whole story, among other stories, let me put it this way, this guy was the chief rabbi of Israel, so that means he was the head of the basement, it's not just an honorific title, and uh, they had an interesting story where 
these, I told it over my show where, uh, how do you put it? The Mossad approached him back when he was a chief rabbi and they said they, they were smuggling people out of, uh, out of Iran uh, because their lives were in danger, but they had to go out through the Afghanistan border. I don't know if you follow the news at all, but the Iran-Afghanistan border, that's like the vildest place in the world. And you hire these, uh, you know, cutthroat uh, smugglers to bring people out. And some of the Jews or all of them who were brought out were killed or died. And then what do you do with the wives as far as the Aguna is concerned? There's a whole bunch of story over there. It was very interesting. Uh, I'm sure it's in his childs and shoes, which, again, I do not have. Uh, that would probably fill a whole other shelf, which I do not have. Uh, so, I mean, there's a whole world of Torah scholarship in Israel. I don't think many people over here is just even aware of. Probably most Israelis not aware of. These guys turn out swarm, you know, by the buckets. And, I mean, you know, quality stuff. So it's just an interesting time we're living in. And this is the world of what you call Sephardic responsa. Uh, obviously, Avad Yosef is the king of that business. It was just interesting to me because... As I said before, since it was the yard site on Friday, I know because this Friday guy in my show told me, so, uh, and he had my book a, a couple years ago. Uh, my uh, student and friend in, who lives in uh, Beit Shemesh, Moshe Alibi, gave me a bio. There's a whole bunch of them, but this is a, a, a better one uh, by this Israeli reporter, Abishai Ben Chaim. Who is a Israeli journalist? I don't know if he's from or not. I mean, I know you went to the team mayor and all, but you know, with the long hair and so forth, it's called Maran Harav Avad Yosef Manhig Ben Halachala Kabbala Ben Political and Mystica. You know, between Habalch and Kabbalah, between politics and mysticism, that was his dissertation. You know, so he turned it into a book. Uh, and he went to university in Israel. The long and the short of it is, he has all these very, very interesting things in Avad Yosef, and it so happens. Derek Agav, that um, I, I told you a lot of coincidences. So it so happens that I started my um, lecture series that I do in the winters here in Baltimore or Mosei Shabbos in Shomer Muna Synagogue uh, or in modern Jewish history. And now we're doing the years 1992 to 1996, which means the Oslo Agreement. And Avad Yosef, uh, you know, got very controversial and caught holy hell for uh, joining the Rabin government in 1992, which enabled the Labor Party to have its last strong government and, and, and implement, for better or worse, the deal whereby they gave Arafat, you know, the West Bank and all that sort of thing, the Oslo Agreement, um, which is a very complicated story. That's what I'm doing in my lecture series. I'm not going to get into that, except that that's when uh, Rav Shach declared war on Avadi Yosef because they had the Israeli elections in 1992, and the Aguda-type parties and the Degla Torah and all that used to support the Likud because they're more tradi traditional, shall we say, and um, and they're willing to buy them off. And uh, when Rabin won the Labor Party in 1992, Rav Shach considered it for a while, but then he said, no, we're going to go against them. And I can just tell you, without going through all, I'm not going to reprise everything, that if the, all the religious parties um, had refused to join the coalition uh, under Rabin, he couldn't have made a government because he, he had uh, 56. You know, say so he had 56. Um, so you need another five to get to 61. This is all very interesting because tomorrow, the day after, going to be elections now in Israel as I speak. And you're going to see the same kind of arithmetic going on. Why do we have five or ten elections the last six months? Because... Nobody gets a clear business of 61, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, BB and all the rest of it. You know, the news is all following this. The thresholds, all the other language that they use to talk about um, electoral politics. Um, <laughs> it's the same thing was going on 30 years ago. And uh, in the long and the short of it is that Avad Yosef said at that time that although the Aguda and the, and the, Mafta, and the Mizrahi were not going to join the Rabin government, um, even though they were promised a lot. Uh, but he did. And the Shah's party, yes, Arya Deri, joined the uh, the Rabin government, and that's what enabled them to form a government in 1992 and 1996. This is when they did the Oslo Agreement. That's when Rabin was shot, and then Paris took over in the whole nine yards. And I'll say it again, without going into too much Lush and horror, this is when the uh, Litvaks declared war 
on Ravad Yosef. Now, everybody's dead now. Rav Shach is no longer here. Rav Yosef is all 30 years ago. It's like ancient history. And now, Achrimos Kedoshim Tiyu, and there are scroll biographies, Ravad Yosef and all the rest of it. So, a lot of this has been tidied up. But it wasn't the case back then. I remember all the schmutz that they put out and so forth. Just for the heck of it, I took out my... Um, this is what I've been doing in the last couple of days. I took out my rusty, trusty art scroll biography of Vad Yosef. Right, the art scroll put out a biography of Vad Yosef, which I'm so, sure sold very well. They completely skip over the whole parsha. You get it? That's how you do it. It completely skips. Everything in the book is true. They just leave stuff out. Uh, so anyway, it's very interesting because this biography, I told you I'm going to be rambling today to a certain degree, but what do you care? Um, the the uh, In this biography, this this reporter, who again, this was his dissertation, so he did a lot of homework, especially especially on the uh, media interviews and media presentations from Ravad Yosef. It's a different way of approaching the subject. Ravad, you know, wrote the, all those Shalos and Shubas, correct? The Abi Amr and Yechavadas, plus the other Halacha stuff. Um, on the other hand, and he wrote Halacha articles and so forth. On the other hand, he was a, a very public figure, especially after he left the uh, chief rabbin, and I'll talk about it in a second. And um, he gave a lot of interviews. And then he had his own TV show, whatever you call it. You know, Saturday night he used to give that Dvar Torahs, all the rest of it. I don't know the Israeli terms, Lavian or something like that. And, uh, you know, then he used to momish, <laughs> shoot from the hip. He was like, Harry S. Truman, you know. He he told everybody where to go. Because uh, Avadi Yosef was a... Uh, besides everything else, no, besides being a great goan, of course, obviously, he was like a comic, a stand-up comic, you know, he, he had these Zinger one-liners, and this guy's got, got them all in the book, you know, when he fought with uh, Ariel Sharon, who he didn't like, so, and remember Sharon, anybody remember, I'm talking about my talking ancient history over here, and, <laughs> and Sharon was increasingly obese as he got older, I mean, you know, he was like a, a balloon by the time he died, and, because, uh, you know, he ate a lot, and, you know, Sharon said this, and Avad Yosef says, Vayishman Sharon Vayivot. <laughs> you know, he got fat and he blew up. And I, I, anyway, I, I don't want to go down that whole hole. I just wanted to make the point that it was very interesting to me, especially in light of the election results going to be in Israel tomorrow, or the next day, whatever it is. What is this party going to do? What is that party going to do? You know, Avad Yosef did not like... Um, what I would call the right-wing parties in Israel. This is just interesting. Um, you know, like I said before, today's podcast may turn into a ramble, but an interesting one or, or not. I'm not sure where it's going to go, and I'll look at the time. But uh, I'll just make a couple of points. Uh, the the uh, Israeli politics, as I think everybody knows, is I'm using broad generalizations. The, uh, you know, Chilone Ashkenazi types are usually to the left. The uh, Sephardi uh, Mesorati types are usually to the right on the question of Palestinians and that sort of thing. That's why the Likud party generally gets a lot of the votes from the Sephardim, correct? Whereas, you know, the Labor Party and, the, you know, those Gucci left-wing parties, you know, you have, you know, the Rav Mechali and all these people get from the, what I call the Israeli wasps, you understand? So, you know, from, from Tel Aviv and from uh, Herzliya and all that types. This is a broad generalization, which is true. And um, so the, the average guy that's going to, Sephardi, that's going to vote for the last 50 years, I'll say it again, 50 years, they usually vote more to the right. Now, in the history of Israel, uh, very briefly, there used to be like two important... Well, let's put it this way. When Israel was founded, there was only one very large party and a bunch of much smaller parties. The large party was Ben-Gurion's, the Mapai party. They always got 40, 45, 46, 47, which is a, more than a third of 120. The Knesset is 120. So right off the bat, they were always the government because they're way ahead of the other parties. So, for example, you know, Ben-Gurion got like 45... And uh, Menachem Begin, who was the leading opposition party, usually got 15, 17 at the most. It's much less. So, if you were a voter who voted on the right, you, know, you thought 
the government should be tougher against the Arabs or something like that, or stronger on defense matters or things like that. So uh, you voted for the Menachem Begin. You didn't get farther to the right than Menachem Begin. He was as far to the right as you can get. And that's the first 30 years of Israel in the 1950s, the 1960s, and the 70s. So if you disagreed with um, the labor government, particularly on foreign policy, uh, you thought that they're insufficiently militant or something like that, you voted for the Khairid party for the Likud. When Begin became prime minister, however, in 1977, so then he found, as everyone does, that once you're actually in office, you can't shoot your mouth off in the same way and be as extreme um, because real life requires a certain amount of compromise. Now, I don't mean that in a bad way. And if you ask what I mean when I say Begin, you will perhaps recall, I don't know who I'm talking to. You know, the young people here, I say these names, they probably, to me, these like yesterday, to them, they probably don't even know who I'm talking about. Uh, we're talking about 50 years ago in the history of Israel. When Menachem Begin became the prime minister, so he ended up making a peace treaty with Egypt, with Sadat. Part of that was that they got a complete and total peace from Egypt. That is true. You know, they recognized each other, they put an end to the war, and so forth and so on. That's very important. But Israel had to pull out totally from the Sinai Peninsula, which they'd occupied in the Six-Day War. And they did. Um, by that time, there were a few Jewish settlements in the Sinai. And part of the deal was you have to destroy them and completely withdraw and give it all back to Egypt. At that time, there were people who said, once we made a Jewish settlement anywhere in the Sinai, we never give it up because, you know, once we acquire something, we don't give it up. It sets a bad precedent. And Menachem Begin used to talk like that, but when he was prime minister, he was faced with the idea, do you want to have a peace treaty with Egypt? They have to be Mavatar on this. And he did, and he destroyed those settlements. It was called Yamit, and all hell broke loose. It was uh, very controversial at that time. So what I'm trying to say is, he did not give up on Eretz Yisrael or Yerushalayim and the Shtachim and all the rest of it, but in the Sinai. In return, having had a very hard negotiation, this is in the time of President Carter, and having a lot of pressure, but he worked out a deal that was good for Israel in the larger picture. But when there's a deal, there's what they call Masa Matan, you know, give and take. And Israel had to give up certain stuff. And he, he calculated... It wasn't Pasha. He didn't want to do it. He calculated this is a, a sacrifice that's necessary to get the bigger picture of the peace. And I repeat, it was a Sinai Desert. It wasn't part of Eretz Yisrael proper. Okay. There were many who said that Begin is a traitor and that he's insufficiently right-wing as a result of this. And they started this phenomenon at that time in the next elections of 1981 that they have parties that are more to the right than the Likud. Um, it was uh, all kind of named Moledet, Tzomet, this, that, and the other. And it was all based on the idea that you can't trust Begin. Which is kind of funny because he was a pretty stark guy on the right. But you can get even more extreme than that. So what I'm trying to say is like this. There's extremist parties in Israel on the left. There certainly are. And there's extremist parties on the right. And that's true down till today. Now, uh, Ever since then, every time there's an election, the parties on the right get a certain number of votes. And the parties on the left. It used to be, in other words, until 1977, there weren't any parties on the right. There was just like the Likud or the Khairut. But now there are. Okay. And that's why you read a lot in the news, you know, about Itamar Ben-Gvir and all these other guys. Now, here's the thing. Um... It's very hard to know when someone is extremely on the right, is this a good thing or not? On the one hand, it sounds like, sure, don't give an inch. You can't trust the Arabs. They'll take whatever you can and use it against you. And you know, there is certainly truth to that. On the other hand, you can go so far to the right that you know uh, you go over, over the Niagara Falls. We have this in Jewish history with the Bayashani and the Biryonin that the Gemara talks about, and Josephus too, the Zealots, as they call them, who felt that the, even the rabbis, the Chacham, all the rest of it, were insufficiently to the right. And this is brought out in the Talmud, as we all know. Everybody listening knows the story. 
So Rabbi Yochan ben Zaka, who was a Godel Ador, had to sneak out of the city because the, the rightists who were in charge of the city were leading to a Chorban. They wanted to stab his body. Remember that? It's only that the two people carrying the body were Lezer Vishur talked them out of it. But they want to make sure he's dead. So think about this. They were so far committed to the extreme right-wing ideology that first of all, they destroyed the base of Mikdash and sec- through their actions. And second of all, they were perfectly willing to stab Rokhaim Kanievsky just to make sure he's dead. He's saying to be Elkan of Zakai. Um, so the Gemara gives you that by way of examples that you can't go too far in this direction, can't go for too far in that direction. Now, the interesting thing to me in the context of politics is that back in that uh, Ravad Yosef uh, was a chief rabbi and then his term was over in the 80s. And when his, I'll get back to that later if, if I remember. And when his term was over, so he was all, you know, a guttle without a job, so to speak. And so one of the things that happened is they started the Shas party. It's not as simple as I'm saying it, but that's what it boiled down to. And once he started the, the Shas party, the idea was, Rav Shach came up with the idea. The idea of the Shas party was that uh, Israeli voters, Sephardim, who are voting for the right wing because they're because of their general traditionalism, why not get them to vote for a Frum party, an Orthodox party? And somebody like Avad Yosef would be a big draw, which he was. I may remind you, as I said before, that the other day was the yard site of Avad Yosef. He had the biggest funeral in Jewish history or at least since Moshe Rabbeinu, that's not an exaggeration. Because I remember he had 800,000 people at the time, and no one's ever had that. Think about what I just said. You never had 800,000 Jews in the world for many centuries. You certainly didn't have them all at one funeral. So that's like the biggest cover of terror display? I don't, know what you, I don't know what you call it, but it's just remarkable. Now, uh, so they gave him their votes, so to speak. That's why they... Shas used to get four, six, eight, whatever, you know, decent numbers. And uh, in the 1992 elections, the Shas got six votes. But the voters who voted said like this, really, we're voting for the Likud anyway. It's just that we're giving it to the Frum. So in addition to being right wing, you also get some Frum stuff in there. Plus to help disfire him. In other words, they saw this as part of a, a, a generalized vote for the right side of the political spectrum anyway, uh, not for the left. But then, under the direction of Ravad Yosef, the Shah's party said, no, we're going to support the left. And they did. And that's what enabled the left to come to power um, and to uh, implement the Oslo uh, agreements. And there's a lot more that went on at that time, but now it's not the time for that. You know, Shula Medaloni was the minister of education and so forth. And it's very interesting to me that in this book that I have in front of me from that, uh, 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 you know, uh, writer, Vishab ben Chaim, so uh, he has an interview with uh, Ravad Yosef at that time, and they're asking me, so why are you supporting, you know, uh, the, the, the left-wing party, the labor? That's not who your voters wanted you to vote for. You know, aren't you sort of like betraying their trust? Because when they vote for Shas, they figure, we want to vote for the right anyway. But this way, you get some from stuff in addition. I'll give you an example. The last 10, 20 years, usually the people who vote for, let's say, Shas or something like that, they figure, look, they're going to hook up with Bibi Netanyahu anyway. So you'll have a government that doesn't give too much back to the Arabs. It won't be too weak. And uh, but plus, we'll also have the from stuff. But would you expect the Shas to go and support, you know, um, you, you know, I mean, uh, Yair Lapid or somebody to the left of that? So in Sahiri so has an interview Listen to this that Ravad Yosef gave, and he says, I'm quoting now from the uh, from the interview. Ravad Yosef told the reporter that the Likud and their broad coalition include some extreme right wingers. Gandhi, Raful, Israel. And everybody knows that they're in principle opposed to giving up even an inch. No matter what they're offered, they're even an inch. So basically, they're getting ready for war. Because if you don't give a bit... Now, this is how he saw things in 1992. I think later on, disappointed by how Arafat turned out, he may have changed his mind and saw he did a mistake. But I'm talking about how he saw it at the time. So it means we're getting ready for war. 
Avad Yosef says, Imein Shalom, Az Yishmolchama. Anachnu Rotsim Shiyah Shalom Ba'aretz. Pikuach Nefesh Dochet Kol Mitzvot Shabbatorah. So he's saying that, you know, my calculations were based on the idea we should have peace and Pikuach Nefesh. Um, after all, Pikuach Nefesh Dochet Shiyom HaKippurim. If we're going to support an extreme right-wing government, they constantly say it day and night, they won't give up even an inch. Literally, in other words, rather than give up one inch of territory in the Gaza Strip, one inch, they'd rather go to war. Um, what will the world say? Now, we in Shas do have a problem. Notice me, me, Rabbi Avad Yosef, I realize this is a political problem. I am not stupid. I understand that our voters who voted for Shas understood that we're going to support the Likud. I know that. They voted for us figuring that we would team up with Likud. But I see it ain't so pushed. If we do that, we support the Likud as, as we were expected to do. It's like we're supporting Shamir, who he obviously considered to be a right-wing extremist. And it'll lead to bloodshed. So in other words, what Avad Yosef was doing was Edmund Burke. Edmund Burke is very famous in political science in British history because he was in the parliament and he voted against what his constituents wanted him to vote and he gave famous speeches and he said that um, the people who vote for me do not... This is a theory. I don't I don't know if it's true and it's it's very, very Nogea to current politics all over the world, including America. And the question goes as follows in poli if I vote for somebody, is it the shot? So he's my representative in Congress, in the Knesset, in Parliament, wherever, City Council. Do I want him to vote as I think? And therefore, if he doesn't, I get angry? Or do I want him to vote as he thinks because I figure he's smarter than me? Isn't that an interesting question? Right? Now, um,. <laughs> And there he's famous famous from Dover Krongles, the Mashkiach used to say, oh, when you, when you go to heaven, you'll say to your parents, why did you let me do this? Why did you let me do this? Because the parents let the kids do all kinds of stuff. You should have stopped me, you know? In other words, when I vote for somebody, do I, you know, say, I trust your judgment over my own? Or in the opposite, it's arrogant for you to not go. I voted for you, so you would vote this way. And you're going the other way? You know what I'm saying? It's a very tricky business. And it's good for a long bull session. And there is Panim Lakan and Panim Lakan. And it's a very, you know, it, it, it's not a Dara Pashat at all. I would say in modern politics, today in 2022, without question, certainly in the U.S. and elsewhere, if I'm voting for somebody, I want him to vote my way. I don't want to hear it. Yet he, he thinks he's better than me. You get what I'm saying? That's, that's usually the way things go. But on the other hand, once in a while... You know, uh, let, let me put it this way. If I was, I'm just making this up off the, on the spot. I don't know enough about economics. I think the government should do this, that, and the other. But suppose I voted for somebody to be my congressman or senator, for example, and they were a big deal in economics. And they went this way and that way. And provided I felt that they were, you know, normal and honest and smart, I would say, okay, you know, he knows better than I do. But that's rare. That's rare. And most matters, certainly of popular culture, of political culture, of political policy. I'm voting for somebody I want him to vote a particular way. The people that voted for Trump don't expect him to act like Biden. The people who voted for Biden don't expect him to act like Trump. You see, that's how politics is today. But here you have a radio, say, back in the 1992, arguing for Edmund Burke, that they want me to vote the way, the way I see this should be the right way to vote. So anyway... Um, sorry about that. The, there's this interest. Here you have a doing Edmund Burke. He's saying, Manachnu, Lachin Yesh Baya. Lanu Yesh Baya. Because, uh, they expect us to go with Likud. Here we go. Shimni Tainit Kolatainit Likud. 
אנחנו כאילו חיזקנו את מה שאמר ולפי דעתי יכול להוביל לשפיך הדמים. I think that if we vote the way our voters want us to vote, it'll lead to bloodshed. And they don't want that. לכן אמרתי, אם אין אני לי מי לי. Isn't that interesting? He means over here, מי אני לי מי לי. I gotta go by what I think is the best. למה נסמוך על אחרים? Right? Why should I rely on others? I have to give it my best judgment. The people who vote for Shas, at the end of the day, he says, I think, will expect me to do what I think is best. That when this is all over, I'll speak to the voters and we'll be misdader. Because if the voters say, we voted for you to vote, go in the right, why are you going for the left? I'll work it out of here. Anachnu ma'aminim b'hem she'ish emunah b'torah. This was a TV interview that uh, Vad Yosef gave on 18-3-1990, or a little bit later, 92, whatever. Um, which is just very interesting, you know. He has these really interesting footnotes in the book. Now, uh, as I said before, this is going to be very interesting this coming week, when you have the current elections in Israel. I want to repeat what I said before. Later on, the Likud pulled out of the uh, coalition with Rabin for other reasons, corruption and things like that. And, you know, it developed the way it is. But Lamaisa, they couldn't have done the Oslo Agreement and set up the Palestinian Authority if the Rabin government, which was a Labour Party government uh, and a, and a Shulamid Aluni government, didn't have the support of the Shah's party. It's, it's just interesting. As I said before, now... You need a scorecard. It's, you know, politics is much more complicated than it was at that time in Israel. I can't keep track of everything. This party and that party. You put any two words together in Israel, and you got a party, you know. Yesh uh, Tumunah. Now there's a party called Yesh Tumunah, for all I know. Now, uh, but we're going to see. Whoever, however the voting comes out, you know, how the front parties go, how the other parties go, and they may or may not follow what their voters expect them to do, which is one of the reasons that I think the Agur and some of the other Haredi parties are having a certain crisis as I, as I go to press, because I see online that they're all worried that their voters might vote for Itamar Ben-Gvir or this other group and the other thing, because they don't feel uh, that the party's reflecting them. So in other words, the Agur representatives, so to speak, feel like a Vadi Yosef. Give us your votes and then rely on us to make the right choice, whether... You agree with us or not, because we know better for you than what is good for you, than you know what's good for you. But that ain't exactly how the modern voter wants to go in 2022. The modern voter says, I want to vote for somebody who's going to do what I tell him to do. You see? Uh, it's a long and complicated subject, because even Edmund Burke, what he said was, you know, the elites should run everything. The elites know things better than the others. History has not necessarily demonstrated that the elites know better. That's the point. Uh, you know, the elites make gigantic mistakes as well. They just try to hide them. So it's, uh, you know, it, 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 these questions of authority, charisma, um, elitism. I just remember, remember Moynihan? I used to like Moynihan. And I remember, this was very unusual, that sticks in my mind, the Jewish press, which I used to read long ago, uh, used to support Moynihan for Senator in New York. After all, why not? It was best friend of the Jews. And I remember they wrote, and he was constantly reelected, you know, until he left office around 2000, I think. And, um, what do you call it? I mean, you know, the Agoda, everybody was in him. And I remember in the Jewish press, they said, now the, the new election is coming up and we say vote for Moynihan. He is a great man. Even when we disagreed with him, he was right and we were wrong which I never thought I would ever see in the Jewish press. Even when we disagree with him, he was right and we are wrong. That's the expression of, of Edmund Burke. You understand? That, in other words, you, you tell me what to do. Even if I don't agree with you, I trust your judgment better than my own. That doesn't happen all the time. It's not so push it. But it did happen over here. Now, uh, I'm going to tell you more. As I said... This whole business that I, these are things that all came together in the last week in my head and uh, in the reading and the encounters and Shlomo Amar and all the rest of it. And uh, it's interesting because uh, I said before that Avad Yosef was term limited. Uh, he served, I forget for how long, two terms, I think, something like that. 
and then uh, he, then his term was over. This is an interesting phenomenon in uh, the Israeli Rabbanut, which is rather new. Uh, in Jewish history, uh, the way the system evolved for Rabbanim, I mean like Av Basins, you know, Rabbanim communities, you probably don't know this, is I'm talking about from a, a contractual professional point of view that let's say a Kehillah in Europe or someplace like that want to get somebody with a rove. The usual system was as follows. You have an election of some sort. Uh, you choose somebody with a three-year contract. Um, if he survived the three-year contract and was re-elected, then it was for life. That's how the old, that's the old world. He had the first contract and then the, the, the three-year contract. Now, by the way, the rabbi could resign, and sometimes it happens in history that there could be fights, and they try to depose him. That'll probably be the uh, next podcast I do this week. Uh, I was going to do this one. But anyway, um, you could have that. But generally speaking, once somebody was in after the first time, then he was in for life. Unless he chose to move to somewhere else, you know. Now, which of course happened a lot of times. You know, a guy would start a typical career in Eastern Europe in a small community, and then hopefully with a small salary, and then it moved to another community with a larger salary, and so forth, right? Now, I think it's, you know, I th I'm sure I must have mentioned over here, is a famous word from the uh, Beis Yitzchak, uh, Ritzik Schmelkes and uh, Big Rabbi in Galicia in the 19th century. Um, many of you have heard of him. And he's famous. He said, when I was in a little town with like 10 families, and I was able to sit and learn all day long, they called me Harab Schmelkes. Then I went to the next community, which was more Tzarkat Seaboard, so less time for learning. There was already Haravagon Shmelkis. And now I came to Lemberg, and it's a big community. I got to spend all day long working working on Tzarkat Seaboard. I have no time to learn. Now they call me, you know, Rashka Bahag and uh, Beit Yitzhak and all the rest of it. That's how the careers went. Now, um, in the case of Israel, so under the Turkish Empire, which I'm going to talk about later, when Israel was ruled for 500 years by the Turks, or 400 years actually, from around 1518 to 1918. So, uh, you know, there, there were government, there were Kehillahs with government recognized rabbis and all the rest of it. And they had some somewhat of an analogous system that I had, but it's all Sephardim. And uh, for a whole bunch of reasons, by the time you get to the modern period, 1800s, 1900s, the official Kehillahs were the Sephardic. The Ashkenazic did not have any kind of government-recognized Kehillahs. So, in other words, if they wanted to force somebody or do something, uh, it all had to be like America, just voluntary. The Sephardim actually had Kehillot, which were recognized by the government, and their Takanas, under certain circumstances, were enforced by the state. This is interesting. Now, um, when World War I was over, and the British took over Palestine... Uh, which they ruled for 30 years, from 1918 to 1948. So one of the things they did was to try to bring organization into religious life by the Christians, the Muslims, and eventually by the Jews, and they set up the Rabbanut, which never existed before. So, especially the Ashkenaz one. So the British government, actually the first high commission, British governor general in Palestine was a, a, a Jewish guy, Sir Herbert Samuel, who was not who was a member of an Orthodox synagogue? I mean, I don't know how firm he was, but he was a member of an Orthodox synagogue, and uh, and Norman Bent, which same thing. These guys weren't from exactly, but you know, they understood, and uh, they're both lawyers, and <clears throat> skipping over all the details, <coughs> they set up rough cook. In other words, in 1920-21, they worked out the le le legal laws and documents, which established. For the first time, a body which was recognized by the government as having power called the, the rabbinate. And they set up this system, which paralleled the Christians and the Muslims. That's really, you know, where it came from. Except by the Muslim and Christians, they have a long history of organization. As you know, Orthodox Judaism has a history of zero organization. Uh, but they set up a national system with a chief rabbi and a based in Haggadol and local courts, in uh, rabbinical courts in all the Jewish communities, 
which are paid for by the taxes and are regulated by the government, and they have powers, whatever powers were given to them. As I think everybody knows, the most important powers that were given to them were uh, getting in condition, which they still have today. So basically, for now it's, we're in the year 2022, we're talking about 100 years now of something that never existed before in Israel, which, I mean, till, since ancient times, and that is, for the last 100 years or so, I'm talking about from a legal, secular point of view, if you want to get married, it has to be in a way the Orthodox rabbi says, and if you want to get divorced, it can only be by get. This has a pluses and minuses, you know, from Jews thinks it's a plus, the Chilonim thinks it's a minus, and life goes on. It's interesting, in 100 years, they've not changed it. So today, I, I believe you know this, so today, so far, although the Reform and Conservative are complaining all the time, and I get it, uh, but if you want to get married or divorced in Israel, which has a lot of consequences, you know, marriage and divorce, so, uh, you know, they, 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 what do you call it? You got to go through the, uh, the, the rabbinate system. Now, um, and may I say that the British therefore set up a, a whole business and they had elections who should be the chief rabbi and Rav Cook. And they even wanted one rabbi for the Ashkenaz and Sephardim and they told him that's not going to work. So they had two. And they've always had two chief rabbis, one for Ashkenaz, one for Sephardim. This is interesting. There's no such thing as an official rabbi for the Taimanim who are not Sephardim. No such thing as an official rabbi for a race. I don't know, you know. Uh, the, the Romaniote or something like that, the Italiani, is for the Ashkenaz and the Sephardim, which tells you a lot about how Jewish ethnicity has evolved in the modern era in the 20th century. Okay, so what happened? These were positions to which someone was elected, but they were elected for life. So Ruff Cook didn't have to run again and again and again. Once he was elected the first time, he's there till he died. And same thing with this Friday guy. I think it was a Ryako mayor, I think, if I remember correctly, from Salonika. He was elected till he died. And then when Rav Cook died, they elected Herzog, who was there until he died. And this Friday guy there, Rabu Zio, until he died. You, you see what I'm saying? Uh, after those two, that was in the 50s. So first Rabu Zio died in 53, and Rabu Herzog, I think, in 59, I believe. Uh, so when Rabu Zio died... The question is, who should be the next Sephardi chief rabbi? And at that time, it was the Ben-Gurion era, and and the main mover and shaker was Rav Maimon from the Mizrahi, you know, Rabbi Yehuda Leib Fishman called himself Maimon. Uh, no, it was an Ashkenazi guy, and he pushed in the guy he wanted, which was Yitzhak Nisim, who was a, a Talmud Chacham, no question about it, from, uh, from Baghdad originally, you know, from that era. And he was the chief rabbi there for about 20 years. But I remember the Frum held that he wasn't Frum. Oh, he was a Frum guy. And uh, I don't remember all the politics, but they didn't wait till he died. Already in the late 60s, early 70s, it was a whole business to push him out and put him in a video safe. It was a young and upcoming uh, star, which he was, which he was. By that time, Vadi Yosef had already been the Rav here, there, and he had published several volumes of the Abiy Omer, so you already saw what a giant he was. And uh, and the long and the short of it is that eventually, somehow or other, they pushed out Rav uh, Nisim. This is around the time when I was in, uh, you know, graduating high school, whatever. It's, uh, I, I, like I say, I don't remember all the politics of it. Because formally, there were no term limits. Uh, so that's how Vadi Yosef became the chief rabbi in 1972. And at the same time, I think the Ashkenazi guy died or something. And so that was Rabbi Unterman. So that's when uh, Shlomo, Shlomo Gorin became the Ashkenaz chief rabbi. So he had new, two new young, relatively young in their 50s, uh, new chief rabbis in Israel. I'm talking about around 1972. One was Rabbi Shlomo Gorin for the Ashkenaz and one was Vadi Yosef for the Sephard. The old timers listening to this will perhaps remember this. Maybe not. Um, and now both of them were big Tamina Chachamim. Rabbi Goran was much more controversial. He had been the chief rabbi of the army. He held himself to be God Ador. He got in a whole mess with that, you know, with the with the uh, the twins and the Mamzerim and all the rest of it. And he was super duper Zionist, you know. And, and he always was controversial. But about Yosef not. Now, what happened was that Goran and Vadi Yosef quarreled all the time. Uh, like I say, I don't remember all this, 
in detail. Probably could go look it up and find it. But if you're interested, you can go look it up. Ad Kedekach, that, you know, each one dissed the other one, and they wouldn't appear together, and so on and so on. Who's, and who's the bigger Talmud Chacham? Each one held he's the bigger Talmud Chacham. And, you know, that kind of thing. They didn't get along. This is when uh, Rabin was in and Begin and all that. And, uh, as I said before, I don't remember how exactly they pushed out Rav Nisim, but they did, because he lived another 10, 15 years. He had a son, Nisim, who was a politician, and he was in the Likud, Moshe Nisim. And he eventually became, when Begin came into power a little bit later, he became the, the, the Minister of Justice, like the Attorney General of Israel. And then he said, okay, now my turn for revenge. So, no, you screw my father, I'm going to get you. And he made a law that there should be term limits for the chief rabbi. And he pushed it through to pass the law. So in other words, I think it's five years and five years maximum. So you can serve as a chief rabbi for 10 years, and then, then, then you retire with a pension, but you're retired. You're not chief rabbi anymore, which is new in Jewish history because you don't really have that. I told you, the old system was you get elected one time for three years, and then afterwards you're there for life. Uh, somewhat similar, not the same thing, uh, uh, who was it? Hertz, chief rabbi of England, used to be. I'm talking about the chief rabbi of England now, of London. Uh, when you had Rabbi Adler and then Hertz and all that, you were elected and you were there till you died. In fact, the old man Nathan Marcus Adler was Eberbutter for a while. You know, he was officially was there. And I remember Hertz said something like, you know. Chief rabbis never resign and rarely die. Something, some, some witticism like that. Uh, but now in Israel, as a result of what I just... By the way, in England also, they passed a law of 20 years. But I'm talking about in Israel. So they passed a law five years and five years, and then you're out. President of the United States is four years and four years maximum. Chief rabbis are five years and five. I think that's how it goes. And as a result... And, and, and by the way, one of the ways uh, the, the uh, Moshe and Nisim, the Minister of Justice, was able to get this through was because everybody said like this, Goran of Yosef is a Chil Hashem, it's a mess. They're always arguing and quarreling and this, that, and the other. And, you know, it, it doesn't leave a good taste. Uh, and so, in other words, and Goran was more the problem than Avadi Yosef. And so, uh, as a result, they both were forced to leave office, you know, in the 80s, whenever it was. Uh, you know, their, their term was up, which is a little bit weird because, like, you're a goddle, let's put it this way. Let me put it this way. What was Rabbi Gorin the biggest Tamachach Nashkenazim ever put out? No, he was a very big Tamachach. I'm not going to knock him, but he wasn't the only guy. On the other hand, who's bigger than Avadi Yosef? You, you see what I'm saying? But anyway, that's what happened. And they put in uh, the successors. That was Mordechai Elio took over from Avadi Yosef. And Mordechai Elio was also a very big Tamachach. Very big Tamachach. And uh, Rabbi Shapiro, the Rashiva from uh, the Americas, took over from the other one. I remember, it's interesting to me, that that they made it their business to get along. And I remember they had their first press conference or something like that. And the two chief rabbis walked in arm in arm and everybody was shocked. <laughs> you know, which is, which is a sad statement. They want to say, you know, it's a new day. And now they get along, as far as I'm aware. As far as I'm aware. Now, because um, I don't follow all the politics that much. So here's the thing. So you had Remorche Eliel for two terms. And then I believe it was Shlomo Amar. I think so. It was Bakshi Dor. I can't remember how it all goes. And he was in for eight years. And then he, and then his term was up. But for some reason, when his term was, and he's a very big Talmud. These are all, everybody I'm talking about, these are heavy hitters over here. And... Uh, I'll, t- I'll say it again. He has, you know, shouts and shivas galore on on dvarim omi baruma shalom. You know, gonna questions and this and that. You know, it's, it's not a dover pushet at all. And um, what do you call it? When he said so when Shlomo Mars term was up, I think he said something like it's it's not right. It's against aloha. There should be no term limits. Uh, and he did not want to give in. But meanwhile. Ravadi Yosef had things set up that when the next election comes, his son, Rabitzik Yosef, uh, should be the the the, the uh, Sparty chief rabbi. 
So if God gives him one his son, after a, a, an interim, he should be the chief rabbi of Israel. And Shlomo Amar said no, he didn't want it, so he backed someone else, and a whole rift broke out between Ravad Yosef on the one hand and Shlomo Amar on the other, even though one was like a Rebbe and the other was like a Talmud, it was all, oh boy, it's a whole business. Uh, the good news is they finally made up. Uh, I saw it somewhere, I didn't know this, you know, on, on every Yom Kippur, I think he said something like, you know, uh, we shouldn't be like the Ashkenazi who never make up. Uh, <laughs> you know, because, you know, especially Talmud Chachamim, let's bury the hatchet. You say, let's bury the hatchet. And they did, and as you know, Ravadio's son is currently the uh, the Sephardi chief rabbi in Israel, and he's a big guy. He is a big Talmud I don't say he's like the father, but he's, I have uh, one or two of his farm. In fact, one of them got stolen from my house. He has a very interesting thing on t telling people the derech of learning, he writes to all these Sparty guys and Ashkenazi guys as well. But besides that, I have something called two volumes. Maybe you've seen it, uh, Rishon Lezion, which he's uh, uh, he obviously is a very big person. Uh, these are all uh, you know heavy hitters, all of which has to do with the fact that sometimes you know, that that great gedolim are also people, and you know sometimes. Quarrels and stuff can 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 break out and have in the history of cholesterol a lot, and sometimes they get over it and sometimes they don't get over it. The person I was going to talk about, but I'll save for the next podcast, uh, was one of the big Sephardi uh, rabbis in the eighteen hundreds, who was again a very very big Talmud Chacham, but always notorious for getting on all these kind of quarrels. But you know, he always said like this: "They did it to me, I didn't do it to them," and there could be some truth to that. But I think I'll leave this, uh, you know, uh, for the next one. So, uh, as you see, therefore, the elections in Israel this week are taking place within a, a framework. And uh, I don't follow because you have to be able to just not have a life and just totally follow, you know, all the speeches of the current chief rabbi, uh, Risa Yosef, in Israel. He's just like his father. He gives these Saturday night things, I believe. And I'm sure he's expressed himself on politics or, or whatever. And I don't know what it is. But you'll un end up with the Edmund Burke type questions. And we will see what's going to happen this coming week. Not simply with the elections, because the elections tell you how many votes each party gets. But then comes the real handling, as you know. And, you know, are they are the religious party going with the left-wing party, going with the right-wing party? Do they want to give up more of the stuff to the Palestinians? Do they want to give up less? They're going to make a peace process? They're going to... It'll be a peace process, P-E-A-C-E, -E, or a peace process, P-I-E-C-E. -E. You never know how this kind of stuff works out. And um, anyway, with that, I will thank once again the Clydemans uh, for sponsoring this for, for Rich's mom, and Shem Shav and Aliyah. And um, I wish everybody a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.